Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me, as always, is Cameron. Hey, Michael. Hi, Cameron. Let's start the episode. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> no fun bits with this one. Well, I'm driving down the road in my uh, uh, ancient uh, hatchback car with Delaware plates. Oh, well, that's interesting, because I'm, I'm just stepping out into the street here from between two cars, and... Oh, no. You don't want to do that. Uh, wh- why not? I'm, I'm doing it right now. You should probably uh, no, really gonna, give well, me I'm a good reason this, to not do it. I'm parking this one right now, and I'm going to go get a Chevy Nova. I'm oh, gonna, okay. I got to get in that car, and then later I'm going to park that car, and I'm going to get in a different car. So you're you're fine. Go ahead and cross okay. the street. Yeah, I actually, I crossed the street several times yeah, you're in good. the past few seconds. You're fine. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, eventually, I'm going to get back in this car. Mm-hmm. And then later I'll get back in the Chevy Nova and then I'll get in my other car and then I'll get back in this car and then the Nova and then I'll do that uh, eight or nine more times uh, mm-hmm. just to make sure that everyone knows that uh, I'm smart and cool and capable and very mm-hmm. Italian. Yeah, you're just you're just so good at keeping track of multiple cars and uh, moving between them. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That's what this whole book's about. Yeah. There's a whole third of this book dedicated to the car manipulations of one cool Italian guy. <laughs> because today we're talking about Thinner, uh, 1984, uh, King's last Richard Bachman book, uh, quote unquote last. It was the last for a while until it wasn't. But uh, uh, this is the this is the book that. Uh, simultaneously made Richard Bachman a household name and also destroyed him as a pseudonym. Uh, and we'll talk about that, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty weird one. And uh, I mean, it's weird in a million different ways. But one of them is that um, throughout the book, there's an uncomfortable racial language. <laughs> right? Like animating the whole thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it it is fundamentally a book that is based on um, anti. Uh, I so I did did a little bit of research. Mm-hmm. I'm working my way in here. So okay. a little bit of research, right? Like what is you know because the the word that gets used here is the G word mm-hmm. that that uh, is is used in Europe in order to kind of bludgeon um, uh, Roma people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're like in the UK, maybe uh, traveler culture. Mm-hmm. And so, actually, I, I gave it a, I gave it some research, you know, mm-hmm. because Steve's working on uh, when he's writing this book, he's working on some like real racial assumptions that are built into um, you know the whole 19th and 20th century. That's what's going on here, right? It, it's it's yeah. fundamentally about like a Roma guy who who curses you like they would yep. in the old country. That's what the whole thing is about. And that's mm-hmm. just like built on some racism, right? It's built on some racism that goes all the way back to at least the 19th century. Um, mm-hmm. Weirdly enough, when I used to uh, 
uh, teach like a film history course in graduate school, I was astounded to find out that a large number of early cinema, and by a large number, I mean, you know, like a handful of popular films, were all about these people. Interesting. Right? Yeah, and about like the evil things they'll do to like good middle class white people. So like this this is a genre that goes way, way back, right? Very far. But I did a little bit of research of like what is the appropriate term? And it turns out that like there's lots of terms because it's lots of different ethnic groups and uh, and trajectories of history that like get people here. So I think the appropriate term that we should be using, and someone uh, feel free to correct me or send an email or send a message to me if we get this absolutely wrong, but looking at uh, the kind of self-advocacy websites that I saw, it seems like the the most um, general term to use is travelers in the United States specifically. Um, okay. Because there are lots of different groups that br- get brought up in, within the kind of language of the G word, including mm-hmm. people who refer to themselves as that, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, which I don't necessarily feel super comfortable doing. So, but I would say it seems like the most broad term possible to use to describe this is that um, it, these people are travelers. Okay. All right. Yeah. I, I the 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 challenge here uh, is that the characters in the book are uh kind of seemingly wholly fictional right they're they're like a pop culture idea of uh like travelers rather than like any sort of specific like steve didn't do his research right steve steve (laughs) is uh pulling off of uh his own i guess his his deep bench of like early american cinema or something uh so there is a point in the novel uh, where characters uh, are speaking a language that's called in the text Romani. Um, and I don't know how accurate of a representation it is because we get like lines from it. Uh, but also one of the things that I read, and uh, I actually read this in a couple of places, um, but couldn't find the source of it anywhere, was that uh, how King came up with uh, like... I'm putting, you know, air quotes here, Romani for this book, uh, is that he had, uh, like, Yugoslavian uh, printings of his books, and he was he would just, like, look up cognate words, like, between different editions to, like, make fake sentences. Yeah, apparently I was looking, so I was doing some Googling around this, like, what is going on, right? Like, what is happening here? And uh, the, the the weird thing that I found is apparently most of the language is Swedish. Huh. Yeah. Okay, I so saw, maybe he was using Swedish editions of his books. I'm not quite sure, but I just saw uh, in, uh, I, I saw like a message board from like the early 2000s of someone being like, why is all of this, uh, like all of the, the ROM, right? So, so they're not even called Romani in the book. As far as I know, they're called ROM specifically, which is like, Related, but not exactly the same as far as I know, historically. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the, uh, but yeah, so people are like, why are they all speaking Swedish? And then people in the forum thread are like, yeah, but like, they don't even make sense. It's <laughs> like the sentences <laughs> don't make any sense. So mm-hmm. it's a it pretty, looks pretty Swedish. I was confused by that. Yeah, it's pretty wild stuff. And actually, I thought so too. I was reading through it and I was like, is there a connection here to like, um, uh, like the, uh, what is the language that, um, Oh gosh, the uh, they drive buggies. The Amish, right? Yeah, don't, don't yeah that's have, what I was thinking. Yeah. I was like, oh my god, is this going to like turn out that these are like Pennsylvania Dutch? <laughs> the, the, yes, that's what I thought too. When I was reading the book, I was like, I don't know. But yeah, so anyway, the the um, 
it, it, you're right. So what's really happening here is that like there's no the, Steve is not referring to any real group. It is like mm-hmm. the racial fantasy. Yes, of the these people. Right? Racial fantasy is like a keyword for this book, I think. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Right. Mm-hmm. They are just like it, generically the people who can curse you. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, and I laugh about that because that is so absurd, and yet that is that is wholly and totally what the thing is. Um. And so, uh. So yeah. Anyway. Well, but it's been interesting to like do a little bit of research around this and find out because I don't. I don't know a huge amount that that's going on. Um, you know, with with any of these groups. And so what's what's pretty interesting is that there are, um, you know, like the Romani who come to the U.S. and they're their own distinct group. And then you mm-hmm. have uh, like many, many different uh, uh, kind of ethnic groups that that uh, migrate to the U.S. across the 19th and early 20th centuries. And they all like do all kinds of other stuff. And it's actually been pretty interesting. But yeah, I'm pulling my, uh, my thing here um, from a... Uh, a website that came up and it was like, you know, a, a, a pretty high level uh, website in the sense of like it shows up in the SEO and I, I it, you know, they have a conference every year and they do a bunch of oral history work and they do like publications in order to hold on to history. So it seems as far as I can tell to be like legit. So anyway, mm-hmm. but they have a big list of like all the different ethnic groups that get like pulled under, um, uh, uh, you know, the various different terms here. Um, and uh, it's fascinating. That's all mm-hmm. to say, it is it is a fascinating thing, um, and uh, I learned a little bit that I didn't know before. Yeah. That's maybe, great. You, yeah, you want to know who also learned a lot from this book? Not Steve. No, you, not I Steve. Don't, I feel like you didn't learn jack shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but little little baby Michael did since this was his first Stephen King book. Oh, no. And quite specifically... Uh, a little preteen Michael learned what a handjob was? Is that yes. is that what you're about to say? I and learned how they'll that. Kill you and how they'll kill people? Well, uh, yeah, I learned that. Um, my reaction to that is pretty good, uh, but I'll save it for when we have to talk about that scene. Uh, the, the main thing that I was going to bring up, uh, based on what we had been discussing so far, is I remember reading this, yeah, when I was probably about 11, um, and uh, being flabbergasted by the number of racial slurs that I did not know. Holy shit, there are a lot. <laughs> I mean, it's a Bachman book, right? Like, And mm-hmm. it, it really does seem like Steve is like, you gotta, you gotta up that quotient by mm-hmm. at least 30%. If it's like a I, book. I, I am pretty sure that this is like the 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 book that made me conscious of the idea that you could be bigoted against Italians, like that had just never occurred yes. to me. And then this book happens, and I'm like, what? And it's and it's a it's a book that is bigoted against Italians by an Italian. <laughs> like I I have never seen. I mean, I guess I have, right? But like the the whole shtick here. Why are we talking about an Italian guy? Well, you'll find out if you haven't read this book. But the whole shtick here is like, he's an Italian guy who's so cool, he'll make fun of being Italian. Mm-hmm. He, he'll he say all the negative stuff about Italians. It, it really is a maneuver of the 20th century, right? We've talked about this in the Homestuck show about disability, right? Mm-hmm. Like the quote-unquote cool disabled person who does this. Uh, yes. It's like this kind of stereotype character. This is like the cool Italian guy mm-hmm. um, who is like totally okay with like, you know, roasting all the stereotypes. Yeah, all the and and uh, you know we we we'll talk about what my uh, 
mental sleuthing speculation about why that happens here. Um, but, uh, you know, I've got some ideas about why Steve goes hard on that. But mm-hmm. this is a book fundamentally about uh, people who come to town and start doling out curses. And weirdly enough, um, other than the fact that that the travelers are doing curses, they, their ethnicity doesn't matter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you would think there'd be more involved here. But really, it's just like, who does curses? Okay, we got it. Exactly. It's like a hologram, right? It's like a cultural hologram where you can, like, see the structure. And, like, the structure is we need, a, we need like, some people who can do curses. But, like, the specific content, right, you can just, like, swipe your hand through it. Yes. Yeah, because it doesn't matter. It's just, like, mm-hmm. curses and a guy. Which is interesting because Steve goes back to this. This is also the engine of Dr. Sleep. Uh, mm. You know, a million years from now. Uh, oh, and, oh, yeah, because there's oh, because it's like a traveling uh, a group of vampires. Yes, and they are explicitly modeled off of, and I think they actually get called. I forget what their group. They're called like the family or something like that. It's a, it's kind of a combo of like what's going on in this novel and a combo of like the Manson family a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the same shtick and it's the same kind of plot engine in the sense of like. Uh, part of the plot is geared on the fact that they're moving all the time, and it's like hard to track people who are moving all the time. That's the other kind of reason that they're travelers mm-hmm. here. Um, one does not get a sense that that there's like any deep thinking here, other than like what makes the plot convenient, you know, or yeah. what, what generates some convenience. But weirdly enough, I guess it does go deep a couple places. But yeah, this is uh, this is thinner, um, and uh, I don't know what what else did a little young Michael learn as as uh, his first book. Well, uh, you oh, know, we, we, sorry, I said his first book as if like yeah. the first <laughs> book like, I'd ever read. I'd yeah. never seen one before. And my mom was like, hey, <laughs> you know what you'll like? Um, so uh, uh, I mentioned, yeah, hand jobs. Uh, I, I knew what hand jobs were. I was aware of them. Um, the thing that this book introduced me to was the idea that one would uh, receive a hand job while driving a car. Uh, which seemed just like such a spectacularly bad idea to me. Even then you were like, yeah, I don't know know about this. Like I was so like, I remember reading the book and getting to that point and just being like, why on earth would anyone ever do this? This seems like wildly unsafe. (laughs) You should never do a job in a car. You should always, you need a hard hat and a safety belt and you should never be doing it in a car. Uh, the other thing that I learned, uh, or I thought of it, well, actually, this is the other weird thing. So here is how I came to read this book. Um, I had, I, I was a big reader, obviously, as a kid. Uh, I really liked horror stuff, but I hadn't really started reading, like, adult horror novels. But I had been reading, like, um, I, I'd been reading Michael Crichton for a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, I was reading kind of, you know, these techno-thriller uh, uh, adventure stories. And I was like, well, maybe I could read... A, a, a horror novel, right? Because these these were books for adults, and mm-hmm. I I liked Michael Crichton uh, uh, quite a bit. So I was like, well, you know, maybe I'll try out Stephen King because Stephen King is like the brand name. And I knew my mom had read a lot of Stephen King, and we had a lot of Stephen King books. And so I asked her, you know, like what what should I read? Uh, and she recommended I read Thinner, um, mainly I think because uh, a one way of looking at this, and we'll we'll of course cover it maybe in the the 
summary or in, in large part uh like this is kind of like a, a an ec horror comics uh story right it's a story about a person who is not particularly good who then does a bad thing and then there's supernatural revenge that is visited upon them uh and they try to fight against it and the the story ends with one last macabre twist um so that that's kind of the big plot structure. And that's also similar, I think, to, you know, how some Goosebump books worked, right? Like there was always mm, yeah. uh, it was very common in a Goosebumps book for like there to be a, a final twist on the last page that suggested that the the horror wasn't over or whatever. Um, and I really liked this stuff, right? I, I loved this kind of like a, a plot construction. And my mom was aware of that. So I think that's why she recommended Thinner to me, because she was like, oh, Michael's Michael's a weird, vindictive little boy. <laughs> he will love this story about a mm -hmm. man uh, getting his comeuppance. And not the uh, plot, the load bearing hand job or yeah. the uh, or the load bearing dog murder or the <laughs> uh, like it, anything. I mean, it's a Bachman book, right? Like, it's yeah. ex it is fundamentally at its core. I think you're right. I, I think the connection to Goosebumps is very appropriate because it is basically what if a Goosebumps story was also an exploitation novel? Yes. Um, like, it, you know, it's just like takes the, the pieces of that and then drives them 15 feet deeper into the ground. But mm -hmm. it's not complicated. It's a pretty quick read. I think I read it in like two days of two like big sessions of sitting on the couch. Mm -hmm. um, it moves really quickly. I, I could see... I, after after the talisman it's like riding a bullet train <laughs> yeah yeah i was breezing through it i was like hell yeah um and it also makes you makes you think what was happening <laughs> like what is going on it has to be peter straub right and yeah. but then you think uh oh i know what the books that are coming down the pipe are so no it wasn't <laughs> uh actually so uh brendan who i mentioned in the last episode uh he and i were talking and something that he floated that i think is maybe uh, uh, a point on the talisman and why it turned out the way it did. That book was written on an outline, which is not what Steve mm -hmm. normally does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I bet that there was something going on there with like, I don't know, like being both constrained to the outline, but also like swelling at every single point of the outline. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not being able to move forward, really. I, I could mm -hmm. see where Steve could really start bloating things. Uh, if he can't move forward, but he wants to keep working. Mm -hmm. um, so that makes a lot of sense to me, kind of delving in and expanding every every turn. But uh, this is not a, a novel about expanding every turn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a novel about getting thinner. It's not about getting thinner. Yeah, I don't know where this is in my... Uh, I read this early. I, I, mm -hmm. I have to assume. Is it in the Bachman Books collection? No. Okay. Uh, and I remember this because my mom like pulled it down from the shelf and she handed it to me. And this was another thing. And she was like, yeah, you should read Thinner. And she like hands it off to me. And I'm like, I had asked for a Stephen King recommendation. And she hands me Thinner by Richard Bachman. And I'm like, mom, what the hell? You're like, you dummy. You yeah, you can't even read, Mom. Are you kidding me right now? I'm serious. I'm Michael. I'm little Michael, and I'm serious I'm as hell. And I got a, a pack of smokes up in my in my <laughs> shirt, and I'm a tough. I'm schoolyard tough. That was me. It all. I know various people who knew me when I was younger listened to this show, and they can vouch for that. That was me. Mm -hmm. I was an evil greaser as a child. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but so I, yeah, I don't know where this was in my. It it had to be fairly early, and I think it was before the other Bachman books, but. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't think I ever went back to this very often. I watched the movie a million times for some reason. 
Um, I, I basically could like, I, I didn't really realize it, but, uh, when I sat and watched the movie for the bonus ode, which, which people can go check out at patreon.com slash range touch right now. There's also a link down in the description below this episode. But when, uh, when I did that, I was like, oh shit, I know this like plot point for plot point. <laughs> like I know I can tell you shots and scenes from that movie, like from memory. I, I have no idea why, but I think I probably only read this book one time. Yeah, same. I so the the other part is uh of my little history here is I got to a particular point in this novel like I finished it. Mm-hmm. Uh but I didn't enjoy it and I remember at a certain point thinking as I was reading this like I don't think Stephen King is that good. I don't think I'm going to read another Stephen King novel. Like I don't understand why people read this guy. Um and like I said, we'll, we'll talk about those specific parts. I, I assure you, they're actually not as interesting as they sound. They're just the boring parts of the book. But in retrospect now, like coming to it with my uh, current outlook and knowledge, they're interesting formally. But at the time, I was just like, why does this become a book about the mafia two thirds of the way through? I think it's rad. I think there is nothing cooler in a book that is ostensibly about a cursed man and his journey for revenge. <laughs> when And then two-thirds of the way through, it becomes a, a mafia revenge spy novel for no yes. reason. I mean, there yes. are great structural reasons for why. I think you're right. I think we're going to have a lot to, to talk about here. But it is such an unexpected turn. And I'll also say... Uh, I think this novel is good. Okay. Long pause. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't, like, content-wise, we're going to talk about all the stuff. I think, like, it it is full of what I think to be the most wrong-headed notions on this earth about, like, people and their motivations and how they should interact with people and mm-hmm. uh, racial formations in the United States. I think all those things are bad, right? Mm-hmm. But as far as, like, uh, when we think about, like, the structure of a novel and the way that, like, King moves through all these different kind of pieces, I think that's awesome. It is genuinely, I think, very interesting. Now, I, I so when I say it's, it's, like, great, I don't know if I, like, want to read this novel again ever, but I think that it, it, it gives me a lot. So I say all this to say it gives me a lot of hope for when we get to Stephen King's like guys being dudes novels that I haven't read, you know, from mm-hmm. like post 2010 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, all these like, uh, you know, like Jack Reacher esque novels that he's been writing or these like procedural novels or the crime novels. Mm-hmm. I think those might be good. Y- yes, actually, I agree. I agree with you on this point. Um because yeah there there is something like the sort of content aside like technically this novel works right i don't mean yes. that on a technicality the novel works i mean like the pieces here like they're fitting together and i see how they fit and i see how the story goes and it uh you know is is kind of a longer term glimpse of what i uh in a previous episode called crime fiction steve or something like that right mm-hmm. this is where we're seeing kind of the most of that come forth uh yeah. than we've seen it anywhere thus far and i i think maybe now too i'm uh i'm like hot tub adjusted in some ways to the bachman style mm-hmm. which is that i mean it is it's an exploitation product right it's like an e uh, an uh what I was an ECW. <laughs> it is a, a like an EC comics like creep show. It's like those things, right? It is mm-hmm. taking a thin concept and just making it as gritty and gross and disgusting and purposefully offensive. Mm-hmm. You know, deeply offensive on purpose to like throw it in your face. 
Yeah. Um, and, you know, in the same way that all the exploitation work from particularly the 70s and early 80s, you know, it's uh, it's like Death Wish. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's part of that kind of genre at the time. And so, like, I think to really enjoy this novel, uh, you have to be able to bracket all of that. And I can in some ways bracket all of that just to be like, I don't like all this stuff and I like the structure here. But also, I wouldn't blame anyone for not bracketing that. Right. Like. Mm-hmm. It is on face deeply offensive and is based in, like we've talked about, a racial imaginary and a gender imaginary and a class imaginary that just sucks. Just, you know, is is brutal to, to sit through. And we haven't even talked about the just like the the fat phobia, right? <laughs> like that this oh, is yeah, yes. this is Steve following through on the thought experiment of uh Dan's macabre of like how fat would a person have to be for them to just be like ipso facto immoral. Uh, so we get that, and then the, the entire engine of kind of the main plot then is putting that character in a lose-lose situation, right? Both mm-hmm. his his fatness uh, is a sign of his, like, you know, uh, uh, his complacency, his upper-middle-class comfort, and, and all this stuff. Like, that's why he's a fat guy, right? Because he's wealthy, and he doesn't really have to uh, deal with the realities of existence and blah, 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 blah. Yep. But then the sign of that, the, the additional sign of that, is the curse, which makes him get thinner. So then being thinner is also a sign of his like moral lack so he can't win for losing <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's a, like all the bachman books it's cruel mm-hmm. right like a, fundamentally at its core it is cruel to its main character it is cruel to all of its side characters um uh you know it's it's uh playing off of like middle-class misogyny uh and again it's got this racial imaginary that like fundamentally holds out for um you know, these like vaguely ethnic traveler characters, right? These ambiguously and broadly ethnicized travelers uh, just to be like the scum of the earth. You know, mm-hmm. that's that that's like the deal here. Um, and it, weirdly enough, at some points, it ends up with this like glimmer of interesting stuff. And, and we'll get there. You know, there there are moments when Steve gets to a moment of like, race critique of racial structure in america yeah <laughs> that's like bewildering i don't i didn't know that he you know he's just not very thoughtful about those things for the most part um and then sometimes very critical of uh middle class life you know there are again hints we've talked about this since at least the shining but he he really will bear down on the american white middle class you know mm-hmm. and, and be very self-critical and we actually found some additional information about that that's going to be pretty interesting but I think we got to do the five-sentence summary. Yeah, I think we do, and it's your turn this time. This is the entire plot of the book. You know, one time we did this and someone said, are you just struggling to read a Wikipedia summary? Uh, No, I'm not. We were coming up with it off the top of our head. Got to do the whole plot of the book in five sentences, and thankfully this is not the talisman, so that's going to be easy to do. This is thinner. So let me say it. What's the main character's name? (laughs) Billy Halleck. Billy Halleck, William Halleck. William Halleck is a lawyer in a small town in Connecticut, comma, and he was getting a hand job before he hit a woman with his car. Mm Mm-hmm. Sentence two. That woman was the daughter of... Of an old magical man who then cursed William Halleck with getting thinner. 
open parentheses, boo, close parentheses, period. <laughs> he gets thinner and uh, tries to track down the old man after all of the other people who helped him cover up the crime succumb to their own curses. Eventually, he brings down the curse of the white man from town, which is an Italian guy who hounds all of the travelers for a long time. Open parentheses, in a crime novel-esque way, close parentheses, period. He gets uncursed and puts the curse into a pie and then eats that pie. Like a big clown. <laughs> the end. Well, okay, that works, except uh, uh, you missed a little bit at the end there. What did I leave out? Well, he doesn't just, like, put the curse into a pie and then eat the pie because he's a clown. Well, he is a clown. <laughs> he is a clown. <laughs> you, you missed a step, which is that his entire plan is to put the curse in the pie and then have his wife, whom he hates for giving him the hand job, he, he like, blames her for everything, uh, have her eat the pie and uh, then then he'll be, you know, everything will be square, right, as far as he's concerned. Yep. And that seems to go according to plan, except it turns out that his, uh, like, 14-year-old daughter, whom he actually really likes, she also ate a slice of the pie. So both his wife and his daughter are going to die from the curse. And so that's when he uh, has to eat some mm. of his own pie. Yeah, that's what I meant about the clown part. Oh, okay. <laughs> but no, you're right. That is the critical, uh, critical bit of the ending there. Uh, so, or like you said, right? Uh, it, you know, like a an, an EC comic, like a goosebump. It kind of yeah. does a little doodly woo at the end to be like, ha ha ha! You thought you were gonna get out of this? No way! This is a mm -hmm. Bachman book, baby. Mm -hmm. Eat that pie. Um. So yeah, <laughs> you have in the notes just fat phobia of the novel. Yeah, I mean, because that's that's what it is, right? Yeah. Like. <laughs> Uh, like, like I said, the, the fact mm -hmm. that, uh, Billy is fat is taken as a sign of his moral character or rather lack thereof. Yeah. Um, and then the entire like plot orbits around him seeming to get the thing that he, he would want, right. To, to be thinner, uh, except it's a curse. Uh, mm -hmm. and it's, Ooh, Ooh, the delicious irony of, of the ne'er-do-well, right? Yeah. And the uh, his like moral failings or whatever are, you know, that, like I said er earlier, this is, I think, one of the most explicit, at least this far, explicit criticisms of like, I think, Stephen King's own, um, I don't know, socioeconomic class at this point. And I think this mm -hmm. is the most explicit one up until Tommyknockers. You know, where he has, like, mm. a, a, a drunken, uh, failed leftist as, yeah. as one of the main characters, right? You know, it's who he was also a writer, too, if I'm not mm. mistaken. So, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, he, he and, and that whole thing is like, you know, that character is feels he is a failure because of his class position um, and his, like, inability to fix the world. But, uh, but, yeah, so, you know, here it's this kind of thing of, like, Travelers come into town. The idea here is that they kind of provide this like exotic, otherized experience for like white people to experiment with their getting their fortunes read or 
doing illegal fights like dog fights and chicken fights and things like that. And then they get games like games of chance. Games of chance. Yes. Yeah, so yes, there's like some moral attachment to gambling here. That's that. You know, it's hard for me not to miss at this point in my life. Mm-hmm. But uh, the but that 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 whole kind of thing is like. Billy Halleck is this kind of singular figure in a constellation of people who are all equally corrupt, right? Or equally Mm -hmm. a problem. He's a lawyer who has just been made partner at his firm. And we find out that his firm has always been involved in like organized crime stuff, you know, with, with this guy, uh, the hammer. What's his actual name? Uh, Janelli, Richard Janelli. That's right. Richard, the hammer Janelli. So like, the whole law establishment is corrupt. And we find out also that like, you know, that everyone plays golf together all the time. And so the, the uh, judge is, you know, fundamentally corrupt at the core, like even before the plot, the the events in the novel get started. And the doctor that everyone goes to is like doing Coke constantly mm-hmm. and it doesn't really pay attention. And the, uh, the police chief just does whatever everyone else tells him to, you know, the law is at the, um, uh, at the serving end of uh, all of these like upper middle class people. And even more than that, right? He says that uh, it's basically all about property rights. I mean, this is the close that Steve has really gotten to ever saying something substantive about like whiteness and property. Because um, mm-hmm. he says, right, like the reason the travelers are, they're trying to kick them out of town is that you can almost see the green that they're like camped out at and hanging out at. You can almost see it from the country club. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, people pay all these hundreds of thousands of dollars for the houses in the road that leads up to the country club, and they don't want to see the, like, riffraff out there, right? And so uh, there's some, like, you know, what, what I would say, like, is, like, pretty standard 2022 Twitter discourse opinions, right, about, like, the, <laughs> the physical structure of whiteness and how it kind of operates the world and the mechanisms of power here. And Steve got there somehow, <laughs> like mm-hmm. you know, Black Panther hating Steve uh, somehow <laughs> worked his way around in a in a Bachman novel to doing that. And but weirdly enough, I think it's only because of that kind of exploitation esque thing, right? Of like, how far can you push the critique? Well, you push it as far as you would push anything else. And so he really like puts the hammer to the nail here to to say um, that you know that whiteness is suspect and like white richness is suspect here in the way that everything is suspect in in their own way yeah this uh novel i think it it, it is right it's like a, a socially critical in kind of a fairly pointed way that king usually isn't like obviously there's been social critique in in a lot of the bachman books mm-hmm. but a lot of it's been very uh uh generic or archetypal, right? Even something like road work um, uh, is just like, ah, it turns out the the interstate extension or whatever was happening because people in the town hall were getting kickbacks or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, it, it's just, it's like, it's almost like general, like, uh, uh, small town politics corruption or whatever. And something like The Running Man is painting with such a broad brush uh, that it's just, yeah, it's, I think, you know, compared it to, to Vonnegut, but like, uh, you know, a, a copy of Vonnegut in its way, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like a game of telephone. And the stuff happening here is, I mean, in its way, right, uh, of a piece with kind of like a, a mainstream literary novel, I think, uh, in the sense of like being about the the dark underside of the seemingly perfect small New England town. 
um, and particularly like the upper crust of that town. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is a real like rage, I think, here to to do another Bachman pull, I guess. <laughs> some sort of blaze of rage and kind of a, <laughs> uh, some sort of long walk <laughs> uh, to a big point. And weirdly enough, it is kind of, uh, uh, you know, not to push too hard on it but it is a, a, a long walk to a weird point that he tries to make which is um you know the the oh i'm, I'm forgetting his first name limke is his last name what's the first name um this is interesting so mm-hmm. in the book that i read or like the the copy that i have his name mm-hmm. is um given as like tadus yeah yes but i know in the film he's called tadzu oh maybe i don't know so I, I I don't I didn't know if like maybe my my copy had like a misprint or something. I think um, that's that's right to me. Okay. Yeah, it's definitely different in in the movie, which I thought was interesting. And I like I tried looking up this name to see if there was. I tried looking up both versions mm-hmm. and did not have a lot of luck. So again, if if uh, someone out there listening knows like anything about what this. Uh, name should have been or like what what was being aspired toward like let us know because it doesn't seem to be coming up as like a a, a typical name <laughs> does it sound like something that steve made up or that, maybe that's her, heard that's yeah that's it's it sounds like something either he straight up made up or like he heard someone's name and didn't mm-hmm. really know how to spell it or something and then yeah. tried to come up with it but the the you know the kind of general shtick right is that you know the his uh, Limke's daughter, who is still like 70 years old, mm-hmm. um, she gets hit by the car. And because the town is fundamentally not interested in justice, it is interested in making sure that no one from the town comes to any kind of like legal threat. Um, and they just, they, you know, for them, the travelers are just non-people, right? They like mm-hmm. just are, are a problem to be swept out of town as soon as possible. Uh, there, there is no possibility of justice other than using this like, curse mechanism right and you know there's a little bit of discussion you know he's a uh limke gets called the last of the magyar kings yes um which is like this you know very interesting almost like lovecrafty and even in its racism this kind of like lovecraftian thing of mm-hmm. like uh, another time another place you know mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. this this is the remnant of some other world there's a little uh, reference to uh, the Lovecraft cycle. There's a, a head shop that gets mentioned that's called the King in Yellow. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and both parts of that, right? It's Hester first, and then Hester yes. burns down, and the King in Yellow gets uh, gets built there. That's uh, Chambers, right? Robert yeah. Chambers? Mm-hmm. Uh, no mask. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that's for King in Yellow fans. Uh here, here's a here's a deep cut for King and Yellow fans. This is how I imagine no mask, no mask to always be said. No mask, <laughs> <laughs> no mask. Uh, but okay, back to the the main thing. But so you know, it's explicitly made text. It's not subtextual at all. Limke says, "Yeah, we don't get justice through your system because you hate us." Mm-hmm. And so this is how I get it. So eat shit, buddy. <laughs> like, yes, you know, there's no ambiguity here. And Steve, get you know, I, like I said before, Steve, like, gets pretty close to, like, a mounting a critique of, like, what's going on in society, right? That, like, some people are, uh, you know, racialized in such a way that they don't have access to 
um, you know, the basic mechanisms of the law or, or justice or anything like that. Now, he totally obliterates that. He doesn't care about it at the end of the day. And he ultimately resolves it by being like, well, yeah, so, but everyone, that happens to everyone sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, and, and anyone can be reduced to that position. And if that's the case, then it's just like warring forms of justice. And don't you think that's bad? An eye for an eye is bad for everybody. <laughs> Right. That's that's really really where it all leads to is Lemke like doing what he does uh, so that we can get uh, 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 Billy like bringing in his version, which is like having his mafia friend come in and harass them and it being kind of reduced to this like, you know, just uh, like a blood feud, essentially. Yes. Right. And, you know, I think that that is a. Um, I don't know where Steve lands on this, right? You know, we this is when we talk about like what Steve does, it's often the author function here, right? Like, I have no idea what Stephen King actually believes, but it seems like this kind of the novel's perspective on like what's happening here of like white middle classness versus, uh, you know, the travelers are just a genericized, racialized, ethnicized, unaccessed to the law. Um, you know, it doesn't seem like the specificity matters very much here. Um, but it seems like where that kind of uh, lands at the end of the day is that uh, um, when you end up in a blood feud, uh, that's worse than like any other problem that could happen. The blood feud at the end of the day is worse than some people being murdered and some people not being. Yes. Uh, which seems naive at best, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, but it's also an exploitation novel. It, it can't be that deep, right? It, right? it can't resolve all this because of the very structure of the genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, so yeah, uh, you know, it, it, it's unfortunate to me, uh, that th- all of it, that, that Limke and his like grandkids or maybe great. Yeah. His grandkids mm-hmm. are, you know, like these one dimensional raced characters, right. With kind of no interiority whatsoever, but it's also part of the genre too, of like only one person gets to have an interior mm-hmm. and that's the main character. Mm-hmm. And that was actually one of the things I remember when I was reading this as a kid. Uh, one of the things that really did strike me, even as I got to the point where I was like, I don't think I like Stephen King, mm-hmm. uh, was being struck by uh, how well uh, King could like meld Billy's like interior monologue and his way of looking at the world with what is third person narration. Yeah. Um, like the, the, the thing that we've remarked upon before that Steve can really get into a a character's head um it is on evidence here it's just we have mostly one character's head that we're going to spend some time in and he's not a great guy yeah and, and i that it's always to king's benefit that this works right that like character and then narratorial perspective get merged in ways that are really profound you know like mm-hmm. they they really work and they they really kind of get the engine going but it also has this kind of obscuring effect where you could be like, well, any weird, uncomfortable uncomfortable or uh, racist opinion that shows up in this novel, well, that's just the character, right? Mm-hmm. Like kind of spreading that around. And I think that, you know, I think we got to be a little bit more critical of that and, and think about what we know about the way that King <laughs> frames race in the past and has talked about not just race, but also uh, fatness too, right? Like. Mm-hmm. We know that that in his mind, or at least in his writing, uh, about what horror is, that fatness is like his core example of the uncanny or of like the line between horror and non-horror. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's what you were bringing up at the beginning of the episode. So it's it's really interesting. I, I, 
interesting is maybe underselling it. It is strange to see him just operationalize that. You know, mm-hmm. like here's my theory of horror. It's it's in the book now. Yeah. You know, what do you do with it? Well, some additional uh, information for you here. Yeah, please. Uh, the the seed idea for this novel came from uh, Steve going to the doctor and being told that he was overweight and needed to lose some pounds. So he thought, what if a person yeah. started losing weight and just couldn't stop? But uh, I think, you know, if we're thinking about like uh, uh, the psychodynamics of the fat body here, um, I do think it is interesting that uh, this gets attributed to King experiencing like this own moment, his own moment of horror, right? Like, what if I'm the fat person? Yeah, I mean, and that's, you know, it's got, I, that has to be in the works, right? Like, right. he's already had these thoughts, he's written them down in a book in his theorization of horror and then, Oh shit, you know, it's me. And that's precisely his like mechanism there. Right. What is the Mm -hmm. line, you know, Mm -hmm. between inhumanity and humanity around that. And so, yeah, there's a lot of like self annihilating depressive thoughts in this book, Mm -hmm. um, you know, about what, what is it like to be fat? You know, essentially, um, Mm -hmm. what is it like to be so corporeal, um, and then a lot of shame around like how his wife specifically talks to him mm-hmm. and right. You don't want to, you, you never want to biographicalize right in in that case. I don't know if, I don't think Tabitha is doing that. Maybe she is, maybe she's not, I don't know, but certainly that if there's some interiority of King that is being worked out through the character, um, some kind of externality is being worked out through her. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might not be a, a single person, but maybe societal thoughts. Right. Um, in, in the book, she certainly, uh, Heidi is her name, um, mm-hmm. but she becomes this kind of like uh, social figure, right? Who's yes. like, you need to lose weight. And she's the societal standard. Yeah, um, that was my, my thinking on Heidi is that she is uh, like, she is so clearly like serving a structural function. She's not a full character, I'll tell you that. Right. Uh like she is a figure who exists uh uh to kind of i mean in in you know the the best traditions of misogynist fiction uh she exists as kind of a a, a mirror or kind of a reflector to catch things from billy or other characters and kind of like magnify them uh so like this you know this is why it, King clearly knows what he's up to with, like, having Billy blame his wife for the accident, right? Like, the... It, it is, uh, it seemed, to me at least, it seems pretty clear that we're supposed to understand that Billy is just, like, looking for a way to avoid responsibility, right? It was like, it's actually my wife's fault because uh, she started giving me a hand job and she's never done that before and why that day of all days, blah, 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 blah. Uh, just sort of all this protestation um that uh you know obscures the it helps him obscure the fact that like he is embedded in this social position where he got off scot-free and uh like and that was not his wife right people did not do that because uh his wife is such an outstanding figure in the community or whatever they did it because it was billy halleck right their friend yeah uh and so, uh, like, the misogyny there, right, of him, like, trying to, like, divert all of these feelings to her uh, also compounds with the fact that she's the one who, like, is is concerned about his weight. Uh, but also his kind of thing with her is, like, he wants, if, if I'm going to lose weight, you should stop smoking, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's something really strange that's going on with with the, I don't know, the structure of the novel. 
Because for Billy Halleck, the like, you know, for lack of a better term, inciting incident, right? The kind of like first little hump we get over is a hand job in the car. Mm-hmm. But really, for everything else in the novel, the inciting incident is not that. It's the trial or the dismissal of the trial, right? Yes. Like, um, and so for him, from his perspective, everything, as you're saying, begins there with her actions. But that that's not really the case for any of the, the um, implications of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me, let me float an idea here. You okay. and I have talked about this briefly, you know, I, it, for the, it, all of the Bachman books are social novels, right? They're like all working through some sort of social issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, people's mothers who fuck. <laughs> yes. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, white rage, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, property. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, what if someone ran a lot? Uh, Vietnam. <laughs> um, so all these things are happening, right? Um, this book comes out in 1985, and I was really struck by the first conversation that happens with um, the doctor. Um, Houston. Mike Houston. Houston. When he's asking uh, about the symptoms of the the thinner curse, right? Because mm-hmm. we, we kind of start the book uh, after the curse has already been done and we learn everything in retrospect, as opposed to, for example, if you've seen the movie, it tells everything in order, right? Yes, yeah. of course you would. But so, so he says, okay, this is the conversation. Uh, I want to see you in my office tomorrow, Houston said. I've got a case. Never mind your case. This is more important. In the meantime, tell me this. Have you had any bleeding, rectal, mm-hmm. mouth? No. Notice any bleeding from the scalp when you comb your hair? No. How about sores that don't want to heal or scabs that fall off and just reform? No. Great. Houston said, by the way, I carded an 84 today. What do you think? And they talk about some other shit. And I, you know, I, I don't know enough about like cancer diagnosis in the mid 80s to get a sense of this. But when the, the scabs that fall off and reform, I and like the, the obviously the losing weight part of it too, the bleeding gums. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, th- those are symptoms of, uh, AIDS, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, of mm-hmm. HIV infection turning into, um, uh, AIDS or, you know, the, the set of, uh, symptoms that, that make up AIDS or at least mm-hmm. some of them. And I really got this sense early on that this was a novel that was working through AIDS panic. Mm-hmm. And that kind of falls apart, uh, you know, in the sense of it goes away. But right, it com- it's a sexual encounter that's unpredictable that has unpredictable consequences to them. Mm-hmm. There's all of this discussion about like homosociality and like all of this um, like, I mean, there's there's like a his doctor jokes that he's having anal sex with him, right? Like, yeah, there's all kinds of weird stuff that's going on with that. And, and I so I don't know. In the same way that the uh, you know I once I got Vietnam in my head around. The long walk it was hard to get that out of uh, out of my head it w- once i got you know the aids epidemic and especially the early 80s right when this is being written um and and aids kind of you know becoming like a massive um public health crisis that's being ignored for the most part by um you know anyone with power mm-hmm. um and being very much a thing that is treated as either non-existent or a problem for someone else, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, think about the way that Halleck is constantly talking about this curse and no one takes it seriously and mm-hmm. keeps telling him it's something else. It can, mm-hmm. it could not be a curse. you got to be making this up. 
Um, I don't know. It, the resonances are just so strong for me. Um, and so, and I actually looked it up. I was like, is there anything going on here? You know, and I was looking for interviews and I weirdly enough found a different interview. That I think you and I are going to talk about in a bit, but I don't know. It just kind of got lodged in my head and I don't have like a full read on that or anything, but it was, it, it really resonated. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I had not thought of that until you pointed it out. If only because like cancer is the word that gets used and like, uh, cancer is a, is a fixation for, for King. Like that's a thing that comes up uh, repeatedly. And I mean, for obvious reasons, like with Mm -hmm. the history with his mother and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, I think it really does work, uh, because of what you pointed out, kind of how this, like the inciting incident here is kind of this unpredictable, uh, sexual encounter, um, or it, it, not that it like, not that this like solves the book, right? It, this is not no, like, not uh, all. this is not an argument where it's like, uh, a novel theory thinner is really about AIDS. Like, <laughs> like, and subscribe. No, it's not. That is how I feel about the long walk in Vietnam, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> like slap that on YouTube. The long walk is really about Vietnam. I do feel that way. Yeah. I don't think that's here. I just think yeah. it's like part of the melange, right? Like the informing concerns and, you know, he says that over and over that I not to kind of go back to the well of Nance Macabre. And I'm sure that we are going to learn more things about the way that Stephen King thinks about fiction. In fact, he's got a whole book called On Writing that we're going to read in like 15 years. <laughs> uh, but uh, but, you know, he says in, in Dance Macabre, right, like pushing on people's social fears is the way you make a horror novel work. So like what the AIDS thing does for me, at least, is it helps me. um like pull to the surface a couple of other things that are going on here. So we start out with this like sexual encounter uh, with the hand job. Um, uh, he uh, hits um, uh, Limke's daughter. Uh, how Limke then passes the curse onto him is he brushes his hand along Halleck's face. Right, so we've got this uh, recurring hand imagery. Mm-hmm. Um, notably, like my copy of the the paperback edition is just like a red, like smeared handprint, and I don't know uh, like what yours looks like, but this feels like a, a you know kind of icon for this novel. That's well, got a skinny guy on it. Oh, okay. Um, so we've got like Lemke, uh hand to the face, right? Hand, this is how hands are showing up. Um, the sexual encounter with his wife uh, makes Halleck start to resent his wife and start sort of, you know, building up this kind of like a, a little like uh, uh, powder keg of misogyny that's going to be uh, his attempt at at uh, the end, right? Like to, to take out his own wife. Um, so when he finally tracks down Lemke after having uh, Janelli like terrorize them and like force force the travelers into like uh, uh, arranging a meeting with him so he can like resolve the curse in some way, uh, Lemke meets with him on like a park bench and he has this pie and this is where we're going to where they transfer the curse into the pie and all that stuff. Oh, I forgot. There's a mediary step here on um, the first time that uh, Halleck goes to the travelers camp. Um, he tries to uh, do something with them and they ignore him and laugh him off. And then uh, Lemke's granddaughter, uh, Gina, uh, she has a slingshot with ball bearings and she shoots one into Billy's hand. So now mm-hmm. his hand is wounded, right? He's got the bloody hand with like this open sore in it. Um, then later on when he meets with Lemke at the uh, 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 park or whatever where they have the pie, uh, Lemke, there's this, and this is like a long scene where Lemke is kind of like ruminating on uh, sort of this mixture of like m- like the magic that they're doing, but also like justice and vengeance and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but he slices open the pie, and as he's talking with Halleck, 
he's like massaging the pie's crust. Uh, so we have this like uh, split, right? This line that Lemke is constantly like pulling open and closed. And whenever it opens, uh, Billy looks into it and like sees like the red substance within. Uh, and then Lemke uh, takes Billy's like wounded hand, like uh, carves out a little bit of it and like presses the blood into the pie. Uh, then they seal up the pie um, and Billy's hand starts to heal super quick. Uh, but the pie is what he has to end up feeding to his wife in order to kind of like culminate the curse and everything. Um, but the, the final kind of thing that happens, um, with the hands is that he goes back to his car where Janelli is waiting for him and then finds out Janelli has been killed by the other travelers and how they, ha they've only left his bloody hand on the passenger seat. Rip to him. Yep. Janelli could have had an amazing trilogy later <laughs> if he had not been killed here. Yeah. Just do a Michael Crichton and be like, I know that Janelli died in Thinner, but what if he didn't? What if he didn't? Uh, but yeah, so there, there's like this uh, sort of, I know, you know, you're you're the psychoanalysis denier. It's all fake. Um, but <laughs> there's there's something like the, the Bachman books are also like deeply Freudian and psychoanalytic in this way, where there's like yeah. this kind of disgust about bodies and sexuality and uh, the ways that like sort of male disgust at these things is constantly being rerouted onto women's bodies. Uh, and then in this case, right into other body parts, right? The, the woman's hand, Lemke's hand, uh, Janelli's hand, uh, all this stuff. It's weird. It's very weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's like weird stuff. Yeah, and, and that's the thing too is, right, like, Steve hates it, right? Like, he, he hates all this claptrap that you're doing here, Yes. Michael. <laughs> um, and so, like, he can't result. I mean, I guess that's maybe what is so, like, weirdly magical about Stephen King in some ways, like, as a figure, mm -hmm. as a horror writer, is that he hates all this so much that he, he won't ever, like, think through the Freudianism on its own terms. Mm -hmm. So he can't resolve it. Right. It just becomes like literally like the hand becomes like a, a, a disconnected floating signifier. Right. <laughs> it can't do anything. It's just there. And the, and he like throws it in a McDonald's trash can. <laughs> yeah. That, that's like that's the end of Janelli the hammer. Yeah. Time for ads. Patreon.com slash range touch. That's going to take you to where the stuff happens. You can check out our bonus episodes. If you back us for $5 a month, you get a big archive of 20-something episodes at this point. Mm -hmm. so that's like 40 hours. <laughs> Holy yeah. shit. I, we, we're, <laughs> we, we have been producing double content through throughout the run of Just King Things, basically. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, you get an extra 40 hours minimum. Some of those episodes are longer than that, too, but at least 40 more hours of other stuff to go back and check out. We've been uh, in the bonus episodes for Just King Things, we go through the um, films, uh, that are film adaptations of Stephen King and, like, some weirder additional spurs. Uh, and those things are going to get weirder and more additional as time goes on and as direct <laughs> adaptations disappear as we get into the 90s. So um, it, it's going to get even weirder over there. I hope you'll love that, too. So anyway, you can go over to patreon.com slash range touch to check that out. We got all kinds of really cool guests in this month's uh, episode. We got a special Jeff. Special guest. Special Wolf. Jeff. Special Jeff. Neither named Jeff. Uh, <laughs> special guests. Chip and Ironicus. The the famed uh, Let's Play duo. Mm -hmm. And you might say, what did Chip and Ironicus have to do with Stephen King or Thinner? And my answer is, 
we haven't recorded it yet, so I don't know, but probably nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Very likely nothing, I would guess. Very likely nothing at all. We just think they're great. We thought mm-hmm. it would be great to have them on the show, and so they are going to be on the show. And uh, so you can check that out right now. That is out right now. You can go check it out. It's probably, I don't know, an hour and 45 minutes or so of us chatting with them about the uh, the film adaptation of Thinner from the 1990s. You also get access to all kinds of other stuff that we do, like the Range Touch monthly podcast uh, that I do with Danny. Uh, You get access to the Homestuck Made This World bonus episodes if you go in back at a little bit higher amount. Um, And uh, when Too Much Future starts back up, our show about the Fallout games, you can get access to that as well. So it's all kinds of stuff going on over there. We only are able to do the show because there's Patreon support for it. If you like listening to the show, um, think about buying us one cup of coffee per month. It makes a significant and real difference and helps us out and lets us do really cool stuff like our trip to Colorado that we did um, now last month that you are hearing uh, where uh, we went to see The Shining Opera. And so we got an episode coming out uh, this next month, a little bonus episode for you that's going to be about going to the opera and checking that out and seeing what was up. You know, we talked for about two hours uh, afterward about it. And then we made like a mini documentary about going to the thing. And then we went to the Stanley Hotel and did all kinds of stuff. And maybe we'll bring in Reagan? The president? I don't know. Our tour guide. (laughs) (laughs) I had to provide that context. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's important, but we had a tour guide named Reagan, and we had a rip-roaring time. Oh, my goodness. He was great. And maybe Michael and I drank a lot of wine and then hung out with Reagan after hours. (laughs) That might have happened. That might have happened. There might be footage of us extremely smashed, like walking with (laughs) Reagan around the Stanley Hotel ballroom. Mm-hmm. where Stephen King filmed something, but where the tour didn't take us. We went behind the scenes mm-hmm. after hours. So anyway, we, we got some shenanigans. We should probably record like a little episode or it'll go in the documentary. Never mind. We're, we're working on the documentary right now. Anyway, this is all an ad to say, if you want to hear all the shenanigans we get up to and you want to help support this, we don't do any advertising. Uh, we don't do any partnerships. We don't run ads except for ourselves, right? You're hearing it right now. Um, and uh, so, yeah, think about c- kicking us a cup of coffee a month, $5 a month. You get all kinds of cool benefits. You get uh, lots of hours of additional content and uh, we get money, which we need. I need to pay my student loans. Mm-hmm. So um, think about doing that. And uh, we hope you enjoy the show that you're listening to. And we're going to let you get right back to it. Bye. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's pretty interesting, weird stuff. But uh, so let's talk. I mean, there's really not much to say about the novels. Pretty yeah. quick and clean, right? Like, Dude gets cursed. His buddies get cursed. I guess that's interesting. Let's talk about mm-hmm. that really briefly. So two other people get cursed. The judge, mm-hmm. right? Only two other people, right? Yeah, just two. Yeah, that's right. So uh, the judge gets cursed because he's the person that let him off. And then the chief of police gets cursed because he's mm-hmm. the person that like didn't breathalyze him and didn't like prosecute the law, blah, blah, blah. All that stuff. Um, these are basically just like little one-off stories for Steve to go hog wild with. Yes. <laughs> like, what if guys were different? What if guys <laughs> had stuff happen to him, Michael? <laughs> like, what if this novel were happening to another person? What would be going on with them? Yeah. And they're um, not even consistent with like the thinner thing. No, 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 no. So, uh, the judge, for instance, uh, the word that gets said to him is scales, uh, which seems like it's maybe going to work on like a justice pun, right? You know, scales of justice or whatever. Mm. Uh, but mm-hmm. mostly it turns him into a lizard man. 
Yeah, he turns into an alligator man. Yep. That's fun. He I goes really off like to the Mayo it. Clinic. He goes to the Mayo Clinic, right? Because he he is like he refuses to believe that he could be cursed, right? Uh huh. Um, he's like he is the the uh, the warning. Both of these other men who are cursed were like the warning signs for Halleck, right? Like this is why you must go and do your quest to find Limkey. Because otherwise he'll be like this guy. So one is a dude who's in denial, and he goes off to the Mayo Clinic, and he ultimately dies there, and he's turned into a lizard, mm-hmm. an alligator specifically. Yeah. So that's happened to him, and then there's the chief of police, and I don't know what word gets said to him. Yeah, Do I don't know? think I don't think uh, it gets revealed to us what word is said, uh, mm-hmm. but he explains it that he, when he was a teenager, he had uh, severe acne or like recurring cycles of acne, mm-hmm. and it always started in like one particular place, like I think like above his eyebrow or something. Yeah, um, and that comes back and then gets really bad. Yeah, and it, like, spreads out. His whole body is, like, one big zit, basically. Yeah. Uh, and it's, like, there's some real night shifty kind of stuff in here, uh-huh, right? So he, like, uh-huh. drags his hand down his face, and all these, like, big, like, quarter-sized zits are popping. Yes. Um, it's and, it, and he says his face is sliding off. I, I really like the writing here. It's its own kind of, like, little story. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then he kills himself, right? Yes. Um, and so that that's the other, you know, that's the other warning here. Hey, you you go to the medical people. They're not going to be help you. You're not going to help you. You're going to die. I think the judge actually ends up throwing himself out a window. Yes, he does. Um, and then, you know, your other option is just to sit here and wait till you waste away, and then just die. You mm-hmm. know, that's your other shot. So why don't you go get getting, mm-hmm. dude? Hop to it, <laughs> Billy. Um, he gets involved. He so he he sends a uh like a, tra- a detective agency. Mm-hmm. After the Limkeys starts following them, bebops up and down the coast. It's very much like the traveling sections of the Running Man, mm-hmm. where it's like, who cares? Yes, <laughs> like, 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 just cut to it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't th- care. Like, this is this is the point where, as a kid, I was like, I don't think I'm going to read Stephen King again because this is boring <laughs> as shit. It's so boring. It's like the Talisman that, like, you get like, and it's like some of the the more boring traveling sections of the Stand. At least in the Stand, and all of those sections, we learn more about the characters it's different groups of characters talking to each other right so you like really get some characterization going on here here it's just one dude and he's constantly reflecting on the things we've already known in the novel yeah. i don't know how a book that is like 200 pages can have repetition in it and yet <laughs> here we are well and we're also like he's learning so much about like uh uh the cyclical nature of um like uh you know the tourism along the main coast because <laughs> he's going to all these little towns like uh, around like bar harbor and kinnebunk and stuff and like <laughs> just like talking to people in these towns and like learning about oh yeah when i was a, a hand in the 30s i knew the lemkes and it, it, it's just like okay like <laughs> yeah and like all, all of that's fine on its own, but like sitting and reading it, it's like, all right, I get it, I get it. You're Here's the class the composition of people who go to this town for vacation versus this town for vacation. Yeah, I do. It's so funny to me. So Steve hates his character. I'll say this, but it comes up enough. I feel like we can say Steve here. But the narratorial voice in this novel hates coastal liberals. <laughs> yes absolutely hates like people who like wear Bermuda shorts and like smoke weed and become lawyers. Mm-hmm. Sellouts. Mm-hmm. 
one and all. Um, again, there's this kind of class tension. We got some good stuff to read about class tension in just a minute. But eventually, you know, he, he finds uh, the Lemkes and the Lemkes are like, hey, no, eat <laughs> shit, buddy. We told mm-hmm. you thinner. Fuck out of here. And he was like, I'm going to get the curse. Of the-. They keep calling him the white man from town. Mm-hmm. Which in in the language that they're speaking, this like kind of pseudo fictionalized language, just means like total dumbass or something. Yeah, something. Uh, and uh, so anyway, they call him the white man from town like over and over again. And he was like, "Look, if you don't take this curse off me, I'm going to get the curse of the white man from town, which is our own like deep dark secret, <laughs> and I'm going to put it on you, Buster, and you can deal with it." Mm-hmm. And this is this I do think is interesting. Because the curse of the white man from town, the 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 curse that the middle upper middle class lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. Hell, upper class lawyer mm-hmm. that we that he can summon up is organized crime, mm-hmm. right? Like the specifically, right? The the conspicuously ethnicized like white man, right? <laughs> yes, like we've got our own curse, mm-hmm. and it's Italians. Yes. That's explicitly what what's, what happens here. I think Janelli is like such an interesting character. Mm-hmm. Well, he, and so I mean, he's he's so interesting that he becomes the protagonist <laughs> yes, for like, like a, full, a, a, a full chunk pages. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like the novel just is like, all right, whatever. Who cares about this other guy? Let's get with the this Italian uh, Steven Seagal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like. It it's literally it's just called Janelli's story, and this is one of those moments like it's a chapter called Janelli's story, and he just becomes the main character. Like <laughs> that's just what happens. Um, and uh, it's fascinating to me because this is one of those moments where, as a reader, now I encounter it, and I try like I, I when I encounter these like weird fractures or like strange like uh, uh, markings within a text. Uh, marking is not the best word there, but uh, uh, it's something like. You know, feeling feeling a slight gap between what the novel was and now what the novel is. And it makes me want to start to disassemble it and be like, did this start out? Because this could have been, you know, put this a different way. Uh, this could have been just like a short story or a novella totally from Janelli's perspective about like a, a mafia guy who gets called in by a dude that he who his lawyer who's got gotten him off on some things he's on really good terms with him he's a guy he likes a lot and it's like hey I need you to take care of something for me no big mm-hmm. deal right I'm a mafia guy like this is sometimes people come to me and I need to take care of things and he goes to the guy and he's like hey what do you need taken care of and he's like I have been cursed <laughs> And I need you to intimidate all these people into taking the curse off of me, right? That could have been its entire own story. That's the better book. Yes. And you get a whole chapter of, like, convincing, <laughs> that you know, this, like, no-nonsense, you know. And Janelli says, I don't believe in curses. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't believe in this crap. Um, but, you know, I'll do it for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a better book. I think that's way better than this book. Yeah, that would have been so interesting, right? If that's if if it had like played with uh, the idea of whether or not this was totally psychological for Halleck, right? And if we got yeah. to like be with Janelli for that and like have him either, you know, come to some sort of conclusion on that or stay skeptical or whatever. And then you can get like a third person perspective on this like question of like racial justice that that King is kind of floating in, just kind of letting sit there, right? Mm-hmm. Like you get this third party being like, dang, if there is a curse, these people are aggrieved, and maybe they've got a point, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you you could put that interior to a character 
um, who is three-dimensional. Because Ginelli, even though he gets to be the main character for a while, not really three-dimensional, kind of just a one-dimensional guy, he's a dude who does mafia shit Mm -hmm. and does it very efficiently, right? But I think that's the better novel. I think that we have just stumbled on the better version of Thinner. (laughs) Well, neat. Mm -hmm. But, But yeah, so he just starts doing, so he like... Uh, this is what I was talking about before. There's uh, plot load bearing dog farts. Yes, because uh, they've moved the camp. He and mm-hmm. and he goes to the place where uh, it was. This is Janelli, uh, and he's like looking around, and then he hears a dog fart off in the woods. And then he's like, "I gotta kill these dogs." Right. That's how he finds. That's how he finds where they've relocated the camp. Had that dog not farted at that precise moment. <laughs> Yes, yeah, and and that's how you know like Janelle is a bad dude. He kills all these dogs. Mm-hmm. Like he's yeah. a bad guy. He's he kills people and dogs. Yeah. Um, I did like all the stuff. Uh, the right before that happens, where um, what's his name? It's not Halleck. Yeah, Halleck. Okay, I can't, I'm having such a hard time with that. So when Halleck is, uh, you know, because he's like losing a lot of weight, he's down from what, 280 or so at the beginning of the novel to, mm-hmm. like, 130 or something, 120? Mm-hmm. And he's six feet tall. I mean, you know, he's a big yeah. dude. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but he's doing that, and the doctor shows up to, like, fix his hand, you know, because when he calls Janelle in, the first guy who shows up is a doctor to, like, patch his hand up with the big ball-bearing hole in it. Mm-hmm. And the doctor's like, yeah, I can't give you anything, like, stronger than an aspirin. You know, he gives him something slightly better than that. But he says, look, I, I feel bad giving you anything better than a baby aspirin because you're in such rough shape. And he's like, here's potassium pills. You gotta, or, no, he doesn't even give them to him. He says, you need to go buy potassium pills. And then Janelli goes and does it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I really like that. I, I, You know, it's, this would be in uh, a place where, like, uh, I don't know. That attention to detail gives some contour to like the back third of this novel that might not otherwise be there. But um, but yeah, Janelli shows up and he starts doing that. He like he starts intimidating them, and then the second thing he does is go and he just starts firing an AK forty seven wildly in the woods, mm-hmm. like at their stuff and intimidating. He's not shooting anyone, but he is like you know, uh, I don't know. It's big movie energy, which is why it works really well in the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, it's like he does that, and that's what finally terrifies them enough to like for uh, Lemke to be like, "Okay, I'll I'll like meet with him and like remove the curse." Oh no, there's one extra step. It's when he pretends to be an FBI oh, agent. Oh, right, that's right. That's what makes this good. Like that from from this whole part up to this is like, oh, okay, this is like pretty wild. There's also a really cool like interior story that happens here where he hires like a like a like an upper middle class drifter. Yeah, yeah. It, the, the implication is that he's like a sort of rich kid from these wealthy families that vacation along the main coast who's basically become a drug addict, and so now he's become a drifter. Yeah, and so he, um. He's like, uh, you know, bebopping uh, around. He's like, hey, I'll give you money to follow uh, the, the, you know, this convoy after it leaves and go to whatever location. He gets made in the middle, you know, so they recognize him. He ends up in the middle of the convoy somehow. And then later he's like found dead. Mm-hmm. And then Janelli just goes and buries him in a gravel pit. Mm-hmm. 
you know, it's like real, like, gritty 80s movie stuff. Mm-hmm. Going this on is here. also where we're getting all of the, like, Janelli moving cars around and, like, making sure they look plausibly broken down by the side of the road so they don't get towed, but so he can go back later if he needs them. And <laughs> Yeah, he ends up with three guys. He, he gets in a cab and just starts driving. He's like, go drive out in the wilderness. And they drive slowly until he finds a car for sale. He buys it for cash, right? Like, there's a lot of detail here about, like, the operations of what's going on. Um, you know, it really seems like the kind of detail that someone who was doing a lot of cocaine might care about. Um, <laughs> but you know, who knows? And, uh, but what's interesting about it is that, and this is where I was like, this is cool. Like, I mean, not cool in like, he's a good person, but cool. in like, this is spy novel shit. Right. So he does all of this, like intimidation, you know, whatever, firing, uh, a gun above their head at night, whatever leaves. Comes back the next day dressed as an FBI agent with a fake badge and then starts interviewing people about mm-hmm. it. This was cool. Yeah, it's super cool. Like, create the, you know, the the conflict. It's some Jason Bourne shit, you know, mm-hmm. way, way later. Uh, and so, so he goes in and does that, and then he, like, intimidates the daughter specifically, mm-hmm. or the granddaughter, um, and threatens her life, right? Yes. Yeah, he, uh, uh, he um, has a... a he throws stuff on her face that he tells her is acid and she's like screaming and stuff. And it's like, it's a bottle of Pepsi that he bought earlier. Yeah. Right. But that's like his intimidation tactic is be like, this is acid and then throws it in her face and she's screaming. And he's like, that was just cola. Yeah. Just, yeah. Just a huge jerk. Mm -hmm. Just a bad guy. Uh, and, but you know what? Evil undoes itself in the end, Michael, because Mm -hmm. uh, that dude ends up dead. So (laughs) yeah. So they go and then they get the curse out. Bing, bang, boom. The end. Oh, I forgot one piece of uh, the little, like, weird chain of imagery that I was meaning to trace earlier uh, and we haven't brought up is that Lemke has an open sore on his nose. Mm, Yeah. Right? That's uh, sort of suggested to be, like, some sort of cancer or whatever, but it comes up again and again and again, right? It's it's constantly referred to as his rotten nose, which, again... um, uh, having kind of like an open sore, open wound, right? I'm sorry, this is just what psychoanalysis does, right? This is another mm-hmm. kind of like yonic or vaginal symbol or something. Um, What's, you know, the syphilitic, yes. right? You know, this, this mm-hmm. is a character going back to the 19th century too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's part of it too, is like, you know, he's this holdover. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. At, at some point, you know, his youngest age that we're quoted by someone, by the investigator, I think is like 106. Yes. You know, he is the old country in all ways. You know, mm-hmm. this is... Um, this is King playing with this like st- set of ethnic stereotypes in the same way that Barlow is playing with Dracula, um, mm-hmm. just like way less artfully and yeah. uh, in the Bachman mode. So it, it like can't be good, right? <laughs> you know, in some fundamental way that the exploitation he kind of uh, lean to it just overwhelms anything that that you know could be more deftly or more interestingly handled. It has to resolve itself in disgustingness, going for the gross out every time. It can't be something inter- at least interesting like Barlow is, right? Right. Um, but, you know, instead it's just like a big weird racist melange. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, do, do you want to talk about then some of the interview stuff that we read here? Yeah, let's talk about this. So this is an interview that I found in, because I was just looking for interviews about thinner like Mm -hmm. what's going on in thinner um in the sense of like i was trying to get a sense of like has king maybe talked about hiv aids at the time did he say anything about like what he was going for did he talk about his references because sometimes you can find king talking about all those things right Mm -hmm. 
And uh, so I didn't find that, unfortunately. But I found, like, this weird double issue of, like, um, I think the, the last issue of 1985 and the first or second issue of 1986 of Twilight Zone magazine. Mm-hmm. That's like, a you know, uh, we don't really have these anymore. Or at least like the genre magazines that exist now are not quite this way, but but mm-hmm. it was it's kind of like half nonfiction, just interesting stuff for big nerds, and then half fiction. Mm-hmm. So you know, I uh, I think this issue, this issue is like the Stephen King issue from '86, mm-hmm. and it's got like a story by him and an interview with him, and then like a review of a couple movies or something like that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, got a beautiful cover on it, by yeah. the way. I think this would have been when uh, T. E. D. Klein was the editor. Oh, I didn't realize that you, I, I, I saw, there's a couple interesting like people who were like involved in this too, mm-hmm. in this magazine, but, um, yeah, yeah. I don't know who winter, uh, who, uh, 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 Douglas winter. Yeah. Douglas winter is the interviewer here, but so you yeah, and I he, were like, he, uh, Douglas oh, winter is another horror fiction writer. Actually, when we were in uh, Colorado, when we were going through those used bookstores, I found a couple of Doug winter books, particularly ones that have been put out in special editions by cemetery dance. Oh, so it's all just part of the same cohort. Yep. I mean, in like T.E.D. Klein's agent, Kirby McCulley, was also Stephen King's agent. So <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. So um, that makes a lot of sense. But yeah, so what stuck out for you? This is a long interview. It's like four or five pages, something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, you and I, we, we each had like stuff that stuck out to us. So let's just talk about it a little bit because I do think it's notable and maybe something that's going to be helpful for us. For the next, you know, two or three years of Stephen King, like uh, a real time years, not our episode years, but like, you know, (laughs) the next several years of Stephen King's writing, um, because I think he's going to be returning to a lot of these ideas. Uh, So I uh, this actually has very little to do with what was going on in Thinner, uh, but Mm -hmm. it's uh, uh, something that I had been thinking, uh, particularly after last episode when we were discussing the talisman and wolf and kind of how he uh, is read in in the you know quote unquote real world parts of that novel as a person with an intellectual disability and how this stacks on top of what you said about Tom Cullen in the Stand episode with Tom Cullen as kind of like the Hobbit of of that cast. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the thought that I had come to was like, oh, I I, I assume or not assume, but uh, it seems to me that Stephen King might believe in some way that the only p- way that a person could be uh. But like good and happy, right? Like sort of at peace with the world and happy and like uh uh pleased, uh would be if they if if they could the only way to be as easygoing as someone like Tom Cullen is is to be a person with an intellectual disability, right? Like that there is a a, a weird thing happening there where uh like King has a theory of like let's say the human, um where uh you know to to be, like you have a choice between like being fully cognizant or being happy right which is really messed up and, and very problematic uh but also like just gets confirmed in this interview where he talks about uh seeing a uh, riding a bus i think in in uh colorado um with his kids and realizing that uh the the route that they were on serviced uh like a, a home for people with disabilities mm-hmm. uh and asking his children when they got off of the bus like if he if they had noticed anything about the people on the bus which also just by the way feels also really weird to like ask your kids that like got to got to like pull uh-huh. my children's opinions on this 
Um, and the kids didn't really like the, the kids apparently have no concept of intellectual disability, but they say um, like those people seemed happy. And his uh, sort of follow up comment in this interview is like, yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah. Yeah. He says, uh, so I'm trying to find it. Um, Cause he says it even, he says it very starkly. I, I can't find it here, but he says it very starkly in the sense of where he's like, I believe you have to be mad to be happy. Mm-hmm. And so, no, you're right. I mean, he had, it seems like he is espousing a very direct theory of like, if you're alive in 1985, it, you, if, if you are a, a quote unquote normal human being, right. You know, big, big air quotes, you cannot be happy. Right. Yeah. And that seems pretty wild to me. Um, so what he says is, uh, when we got off the bus, I said to my kids, did you, uh, make anything of those people? And my daughter who was six then said they were happy people, weren't they daddy? And I said, yes, they were happy people. Yeah. Right. And he says, uh, follows that up. A lot of horror writers and fantasy writers I know do laugh and smile a lot. And it is a facade because most of us are halfway to being crazy. I would guess just that down underneath, a lot of us are really certifiable. So he's saying yeah. he's he's a horror author, right? He writes the things he does because he's an unhappy person and in kind of a fundamental way. Yeah. Um, he's talking about feeling violent. Uh, uh, we find out that the uh, like you you were t- uh, talking about this before uh, that the Excedrin thing. Oh yeah, the the uh, in The Shining, one of the uh, Jack's habits is dry chewing Excedrin when he has a headache, and. Uh, Sort of seemingly not knowing this, uh, this is a thing that uh, Douglas Winter says about King uh, mm, in kind of his yeah. like uh, little intro to this interview because he spent it. He apparently spent like maybe a week or a weekend at the King's house um, and was just sort of describing like their home life and stuff and mentioned some of King's habits. And one of them is is the dry chewing Excedrin. <laughs> yeah, which is like a fascinating thing. So th- this, I think, is really enlightening of books all the way up to Tommy Knockers. So I'm at least up to that. So I'm going to, I'm going to say this, or I'm just going to read the whole thing. So this is winter, um, asking the question, you had a fairly fundamentalist religious upbringing, which comes out in many of your books. How do you measure that upbringing against your current religious feelings? This is Stephen King. Well, my religious feelings have not changed much over the years. They are as traditional as the stuff I write. They are not complete. I believe in God. I think there is a God. I suspect that Jesus Christ may have been divine. I believe what I write when I say that we live in the center of a mystery. Believing that there is just life, and that's the end of it, seems to me as primitive as believing that the entire universe revolves around the earth. On the level of conversation, the idea that offends me that you can spend 65, 75, 85 years of your life as a pilgrim storing up not just data and conclusions, but some kind of wisdom, some kind of moral ability, and then one day you wake up dead and that's the end. Your brain is just so much useless clay and they can carve you up and put you in the fields. I don't believe that. On the other hand, it's very tough for me to believe in anything about organized religion. I think Jerry Falwell is a monster and I think Jimmy Swaggart is a monster. Part of me will always be that Methodist kid who was told that you were not saved by work alone and that hellfire was very long. The idea that the pigeon comes to polish his beak on the top of the Iron Mountain once every 10,000 years, and by the time that mountain is worn down, that's the first second of your stay in hell. 
When you are six or seven years old, that kind of stuff bends your mind a little. So it keeps coming back in my fiction. And the major reason I think is that I still believe that most of the ideas expressed by Christianity, particularly the progression from the Old Testament uh, ideas to the New Testament ideas, are morally valid. And they make interesting sounding boards for a lot of supernatural fiction. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that is super important. I mean, obviously, we've talked about that a lot, The this kind of like pseudo-Christianization of the white mm-hmm. that's appeared a couple times now. The idea, as is you've, is you've brought up a bunch of time, that evil undoes itself, quote-unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, here we've got King saying, yeah, when I'm, do, when I'm playing in that, that universe, it's because I am playing in a kind of Christianized mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He, he basically, you know, says here that like uh, the, the fire and brimstone is is good grist for the horror mill, right? Like, yeah. uh, uh, writing a story is kind of like being a, a vengeful god and finding the sinners that you're going to take up in your hand, which is what thinner is, really. Mm-hmm. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, you can you can draw a line from whatever he's writing this eighty three, eighty four, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. Um, he's writing thinner, and then you can draw a line directly to a statement like this. And you're like, oh yes, and keep this in our mind as we go through it. Uh, keep this in our mind as we go through Tommy knockers, right? We're mm-hmm. going to, we're going to run into this quite a lot. Uh, here's a gear shift. This is the next question, but I love this so much. Winter. When did you actually start writing King? I can remember the first real horror story that I wrote. I was about seven years old, and I had internalized the idea from the movies that when everything looked blackest, the scientists would come up with some off-the-wall solution that would take care of things. I wrote about this big dinosaur that was really ripping ass all over everything. And finally, one guy said, wait, I have a theory. The old dinosaurs used to be allergic to leather. So they went out and they threw leather shoes and leather vests at it, and it went away. That's so goddamn good. <laughs> I wish he would rewrite that story. Right. <laughs> where's where's like the 1000 page opus about the dinosaur ripping ass all over everything? <laughs> the idea that it's ripping the, the language. You can see. Can you imagine being in the room with Stephen King chewing Excedrin going through this long answer about his like Christian history and being like, oh, yeah. And I was talking about this dinosaur ripping ass around everywhere. <laughs> I love that so much. It's so good to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the There's some other stuff here that, that is pretty interesting. He walks through his career. I'll put a link to this in the show description so people can check it out if they want to. The whole issue is pretty interesting. Um, but one thing at the end really stuck out to you, right? Uh, is that the part where he says he owns a nuke? Yes. Yeah, that part. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he's being... Uh, uh, a little facetious here, right? But he's mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm pretty sure. I'm just I'm trying to cover my bases. I'm hedging here in case mm-hmm. Steve mm-hmm. does own a nuke. Um, he basically says that uh, uh, the implication is that because uh, this comes after a sort of long uh, discussion he has about like how much basically how much money he he's making, uh, like how big his advance was for Carrie, right? How that really just like absolutely changed their lives. Uh, and he gets to this point where he says, well, you know, there's like like the implication being like, I'm paying so much in taxes that uh, of all of the nukes that this country owns, one of them has to be mine. And like what I want is for the nuke that I own to stay in its silo. Yeah. And then he says what's so interesting is like, yeah, uh, I think that people need to do something about it. Like, you can't just, like, sit at home and, like, I mean, he doesn't say, I mean, it's it's the 1985 version of, you can't just sit at home and tweet, 
Yes. <laughs> but it's like, Steve, what do you think you're doing? Uh, Campaigning for Gary Hart. That's who. Yeah, that is. That comes up here as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, so <clears throat> uh, the thing that I have come back to since the stand is that all of those things are laying around waiting for somebody to pick them up. He's talking about like the gadgets and things, you know, the gadgetry. And I get haunted by the idea of gadgets because that's all it is. Uh, gadgets. It's all stuff hooked together with rubber bands and Elmer's glue. It's all insert tab A into tab B. We love things like that. So now we have nuclear bombs. We have stuff that can kill 20 million people in 12 seconds. CBW, nerve gas, the nukes, all of this stuff. It's just gadgets. That's all it is. Our technology has outraced our morality. And I don't think it's possible to stick the devil back in the box. I think that it will kill us all in the next 20 years. Every day when I wake up and turn on the news, I wait for someone to say that Paris was obliterated last night by a gadget. It's only the grace of God that has kept it from happening so far. But at the same time, I think that you have to try so that if we do go on after we die, when we discorporate, we can look around at the discorporated spirits of our dead kids and say, hey, I tried. My hands are clean. You've got a kid who's 12 years old. What are you going to say to him after the big one goes up? Even if we don't go on, if you've got 12 minutes before the missiles land, you turn around and the kid says to you, I understand the world is ending, Dad. What did you do to stop this from happening? Happening, and you say, well, I played my doors tapes. It doesn't God. work. I gave to care. When the UNICEF volunteer came to the door, I uh, gave what I could. You can't say that. It's not sufficient. And particularly, it's not sufficient for me because I own my own nuclear missile silo somewhere in Kansas, I think, with my taxes and all. That's mine. That's my Titan missile. I paid for it with my tax dollar over the last 10 years since carry. They are my cinder blocks. It's my liquid oxygen. That's in my veins and in the or that's in the veins and in the fuel tank. It's my warhead and I would like to do something about keeping it in the hole in the ground. And then winter, like, obviously this was edited, but it just moves on to winter. What do you see as the most essential element of a good horror story? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just what a bleak thing. Yes. What a bleak thing to be walking around with. Uh, you know, I bought a nuke. You right. Know, my, my tax money is doing that. And, um, you know, you really get a sense... It it really is interesting to me because there's so much of this like 1970s and 1980s, what I would say like center right impulse in King, Mm -hmm. right? Um, In the way that he writes characters, in the way that he kind of produces a narrative universe with assumptions that, you know, I I would not say are particularly left leaning, especially at the time. Um, And uh, and yet, like clearly, like in his like day to day politics, he, he really is pushing, you know, at least Democrat, right? You know, mm-hmm. center left. Um, but I think this this is also really enlightening for that, right? So this is from the same interview. So Winter says, you have worked right next door in most of your fiction, using Maine settings, even creating an entire fictional Maine landscape. Has life in Maine been an influence on your fiction? And so King says, I don't really know because I'm really too close to that thing. I am a part of that landscape because I've lived in Maine almost all my life. I was born there and I've lived there full time since 58 or 59. When we moved back after four years in Connecticut, which was the only urban experience we had until we moved to Bangor a few years ago. And Bangor is not exactly New York with 35,000 people. All I can say is that Maine is a rural existence, and in that sense, it is universal, but only to rural people. The majority of our population lives in cities, and some of the success that I've enjoyed uh, uh, may be a longing for for rural scenes. So, like people who read the book are yearning for, uh, you know, rural stuff. Back to King. In a realistic sense, or in the sense that realism affects myth in the story or idea in the story, we could dig into that all day. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry. 
In a realistic sense, or in the sense that realism reflects myth in the story or idea in the story, I hate the country. I love Maine and I hate it. There's a bitter feel to the real country. When you think of Maine, you probably think of lobsters in the seacoast and Bar Harbor and sailboats and all that stuff, but the real country is poor people with no teeth. Junked out cars in people's yards, poverty, food stamps, hostility to the people who use food stamps, uh, uh, indigenous Americans who drink too much, is not the word he uses, because it's expected of them. Mm-hmm. A kind of grotesque comedy of people who are so out of touch with the rest of the world that sometimes they live in their cars. They live in pup tents in the woods with great big color TVs inside them. I could go on and on, and none of it really means anything except to say that I also love it. I love that Joe Camber in Cujo, but I also hated him because he was an asshole. But he was my asshole. Not in the physiological sense, you understand. What I mean is that I know the guy and I love him because he's like me. Mm Mm-hmm. And look, you know, there's occasionally on this show where we've gotten to uh, point at something that Steve has said and go, Hey, we got that right. Mm Mm-hmm. By just reading the books. And holy shit, we got this one right. (laughs) Yeah. Like, like it's all like self-hating, self-loathing around, you know, class background and where he comes from and where he is. You know, that's the whole nuclear weapon thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the cost of getting rich is b- being a rich guy. <laughs> right. And, and producing all the things that rich people produce with the, the money that they make. And the cost of being a poor person is being a profligate asshole. Right, right. There's uh, this bizarre <laughs> thing that happens in that description where it's like, on the one hand, oh, these poor people, right, who are so impoverished that they don't have homes, that they're living in their cars, that they're living in tents in the woods. And then we've got like... Like Fox News slipping in on the other side, being like, and they've got giant color TVs in their pup tents. Yeah, it's the radical center, right? Mm-hmm. Like everyone's right. Um, you know, in Steve's estimation, a- everyone who is critical of like any social group is correct. Um, <laughs> somehow, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know how that all works out, but uh, that really, to me, you know, set, sets a tone for um, some of what's coming up, and it really makes you think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, being really kind of the first, well, one of the few, I guess, like urban novels. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, it's I about mean, city. Yeah, it's about dairy. Um, yeah. that's interesting because in that other interview, or yeah, I guess it was an interview that we were reading. Um, did you notice this that he talks about it? Because this is an interview that came out just around the time it was from the Washington Post interview. Uh, oh yeah, that came out just at, after Thinner had published, which was also the point at which the Bachman pseudonym got blown. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, so so we read the initial uh, 1985 piece, 86 piece that is the Washington Post, like blowing up the whole story and kind of summarizing everything. And we haven't talked about that yet. I, I'm, I'm just saying this to set you up to mm-hmm. say Richard Bachman's the, the whole name got blown up. Uh, and we've already talked about the Bean Bachman essay back in what rage, maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, maybe there's other stuff from that that piece uh, that you want to talk about. Oh, I was just I, what I thought was interesting about that uh, is a, a couple of things. Um, one is that he mentions that he's writing it at the time. Mm-hmm. So we can like look forward to that. One of the things that he says uh, uh, to call back to like we say a thing on the podcast and then Steve just like tweets it out um, how he describes it. Did you notice this? He calls it an over exposition of the body from different seasons. Oh, I didn't see that. He straight I, up I just really... says that. <laughs> 
Good. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, That's right. <laughs> and then uh, just the other thing I think that is interesting about that uh, uh, article to bring up is that um, a, a couple, well, there's kind of a couple of like nested issues here. Uh, one reason Bachman exists per King kind of earlier is that he kind of wanted to see if he could make lightning strike twice. Right. Um, like, mm. was there something, is there something about my writing or was it just sort of complete chance that I became Stephen King, the brand? And so he does the Bachman experiment. They don't sell particularly well. Um, and then, uh, he has thinner, which he has written sort of with, uh, the idea of it being a Bachman novel in mind. Uh, but also, uh, then makes demands from new American library, his, his publisher for the Bachman books, um, this should be in hardcover. The prior Bachman books had been uh, paperbacks. Now, this this is where it does get a little fiddly. So how King presents this is that uh, he said, hey, what if it were a hardcover? Or And they were really excited to do it. But I have read other things that suggest that like King came to them with the request, make this one a hardcover. Uh, mm. It also got a big marketing push, which the prior Bachman books did not have. And so even before the pseudonym was blown, it was the best-selling Bachman book by far. And in fact, uh, it was, I think, because it was so best-selling, because it was like it was uh, being pushed into the same circles of like like Book of the Month clubs that King was regularly like this is all of my mom's Stephen King books that she owned were things that she was getting from like uh, book clubs. Mm. Um, and so like my copy of thinner was like the book of the month club copy of thinner. So it was being promoted in those spaces where Stephen King was already a presence. And this was where people really started to say, like, I think these are the same guy. <laughs> like, I, I, if not like, uh, uh, something weird is going on. Um, so that, that is something that is happening here. The other thing is that uh, the, way, the way that King presents it in the Washington Post article is that this was his way of trying to get around uh, only being allowed to publish two books a year. Yes. Right. So it was, it was his way of kind of strong arming the publisher uh, into showing that, like, no, I could I could publish four books a year. And this is the part of the article where he gets in on talking about, like, uh, it and everything, all of these upcoming things that he has that he wants to uh, publish all at the same time. Yeah. I mean, it just seems like looking at schematically what happens, it really just looks like Stephen King wanted to strong arm his publisher into letting him publish more than two books a year. Mm -hmm. And he got away with it. Yep. And we're reaping the benefit, the whirlwind. Great. <laughs> on, on that whole thing. Um, yeah, yeah. That's, it's all to our benefit, I suppose. Uh, do you want to do some segments? I think so. The first segment is My Favorite Kingism, uh, which is the segment where Cameron and I both pick uh, something from the, the novel, usually a, a word, a phrase, a bit of prose, a sentence, a paragraph uh, that encapsulates the, the Stephen King reading experience, uh, something that we liked about it, sometimes occasionally something that we dislike about it, but, um, you know, something that is, uh, as I've said in, in many other episodes, indelibly Kingian nonetheless. Uh for me, uh, this is actually, this is related to the doctor uh, who you said is uh, constantly doing cocaine. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah. So this was uh, another, like, fun little experience for 11-year-old Michael. 
um, is like, oh, a doctor's doing cocaine? My God. Uh, but the other thing that happens is it, this is my first kingism. <laughs> I love the idea of that little Michael. He, like your eyes get yeah. wide. The monocle pops out. Uh-huh. <laughs> your bowler hat goes up a full foot. <laughs> like hand jobs and cars and doctors doing cocaine. Oh, my word. My pipe. <laughs> Um, uh, but this ends up being my first kingism uh, because the way that the doctor refers to his bumps of cocaine is toot sweet. Um, so like as he's doing it, he like looks to Billy and he like you know offers him some of the some of the cocaine. He has like a little like cocaine spoon, right? And he's like toot sweet. Um, uh, and that's like just it's like uh it's a very kingy thing, right? The character has like this specific thing that they tend to say, and uh, it recurred like uh Halleck ends up having various nightmares and dream sequences throughout the novel, and usually like the doctor shows up in it, and he's just like wandering around like saying toot sweet over and over and over again, which is another like uh you know not just a the the king thing of the character who repeats the phrase, but then the king thing of like that phrase becoming stuck in another character's like interior monologue and echoing um so like literally from this point forward i have never been able to hear the phrase toot sweet uh without thinking of this doctor doing cocaine that's just with you for the rest of your life yep like that's what that phrase means to me now the uh yeah we didn't talk about this but uh yeah but i I do want to bring it up here that uh so 1995 stephen king directs and releases maximum overdrive mm-hmm. he's been hanging out with gino de Laurentiis for a while now mm. and i think there's something really interesting that there's this like italian american mobster guy who constantly talks about being italian <laughs> and steve has been spending a lot of time with an italian guy mm-hmm. like a huge amount of time for with an italian guy and so and there's this comfort right that steve has with um uh, you know, this kind of, I don't know, offensive self, you know, reference stuff, right? Mm-hmm. About like using all these, like um, uh, Janelli uses all these like uh, both Italian stereotypes and slurs for Italians when he's referring to himself. And I really wonder if Steve got like a little too comfortable with people doing that. Mm-hmm. And he was like, this is just the way Italians and Italian Americans talk. <laughs> I will say my favorite, my favorite one, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say a slur, I promise. Like my favorite, please don't. (laughs) Uh, But my favorite bit of this is the one where like Billy like puts something together and how Janelli responds is like, wow, William, he always calls him William, right? Um, He's like, wow, William, if you get any smarter, people are going to think you're Italian. I love it. It's so good. Yeah, that is such a... You know Dino De Laurentiis said that, right? Like, right, like, that was when I, like, after you, uh, uh, like, gave me your De Laurentiis theory and I was reading it, I was like, oh, 100%, like, I feel like Dino had to say that to Steve at some point. <laughs> he had to, because his whole thing, right, is, like, Italian craftsmen, bringing mm-hmm. people over from Italy. He, he believed that that was, like, the best thing to do, and that's partially, uh, you know, the reason for founding the studio and also undercutting union labor. <laughs> you know, kind of a combo, <laughs> one-two punch, right? So, uh, like, that just feels right out of Dino De Laurentiis' mouth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's like a, like, where everything else is a little bit like, ugh, like, you know, pulling my collar, uncomfortable. That feels like genuinely like a charitable and fun thing for someone to say. Right? Yes, like, right. Like, th- that's, um, yeah, right. It's, it's, it's like an affectionate thing to say. Uh, right, exactly. <laughs> um, my favorite kingism, weirdly enough, has to do with the other doctor. Um, and it's this, like, weirdly specific amount of information the guy has. And so, like, he shows up oh, and the he's mob like, doctor, check- you mean? 
the mob doctor mm-hmm. yeah the the uh the like guy who used to be a doctor and so he shows up and i don't you know i know this is a favorite kingism here i feel like the guy who feels like he's from a completely other story who just shows up for one scene mm-hmm. i think that's like a kingian kind of thing that <laughs> especially as these cast lists start becoming like 45 people long um especially in dark tower two and three this like kind of character is going to show up a lot but he he comes in and he's like, oh yeah, you that a ball bearing did go through your hand, didn't it? And he says, uh, then you're probably all right. You can't very well soak a steel ball bearing in poison the way the Javaro soaked their wooden arrowheads in curare, and it doesn't seem likely the woman could have painted it with anything if it was all as spur of the moment as you say. This should heal well with no complications. He took out disinfectant gauze and elastic bandage. I'm gonna pack the wound and blah blah blah. What the fuck, man? Right. What? <laughs> why would why would that be in the top one million things you would think would happen here? <laughs> it's like such an oddly specific thing where you think, does this guy have experience with the Javaro? Yeah. Like what's going on here? <laughs> oh, I remember noticing that too and being like, well, that's a strange pull. <laughs> It's such a strange bowl. And the fact that he has to like he he like cogitates through, it's like, well, it's unlikely she could have painted it with something. Yeah, it's it's absolutely bizarre. So, uh, so yeah, the next segment is what in the Kingiverse, where we notice like connections between this and other Stephen King works. Uh, there aren't many like let's say direct connections here, uh, but there is a part where uh, I think this is when he is seeing the doctor that I mentioned, Houston, the the, the cocaine doctor, uh, and is trying to explain to him. Uh, Halleck is that uh, he thinks he's been cursed and uh, the doctor says like you're starting to sound like something out of a Stephen King novel huge wet fart sound wah, massive wah, wah. unbelievably large wet fart noise the worst yeah. wet fart noise on earth yeah. it's disturbing it's mm-hmm. it's echoing down through the generations and and they like repeat this back and forth right it's like it's not like a stephen king novel yes it is like like the name gets said a couple of times and so like uh two points here one is that uh i'm pretty sure this probably fed into some of the people who uh were reading this book thinking like damn is this a stephen king pseudonym i wonder if these people are the same guy because he's calling out stephen king by name and also uh it's set largely in maine in the back half <laughs> Like, uh, that's happening. Um, and then too, like, as we get further and further into the oeuvre, uh, we will, I mean, this already came up actually in, in the episode on the dead zone. Uh, Stephen King exists within the Kingiverse. Yeah. Right. People read Stephen King novels within later Stephen King novels. Yep. That's true. Right. Don't they? <laughs> um, uh, also, uh, additional thing in Kingiverse, Maine is in this novel. <laughs> yes, the well-known Maine. Mm-hmm. Uh, next segment is Uncle Stevie's mixtape, where we talk about the music from these uh, novels, because Steve loves some music. Not that many in this one. No, not really. Uh, just three songs that I could notice. Uh, you didn't add any that you Mm-mm. picked up that I missed, so I guess it's just these three. I don't know. How do we want to do this? I missed the one in the middle, too, so I actually only noticed the first two, or the first and the third one here. Um, let's just talk about them in a general sense. We can rate them since there's only three. There's Jerry Jeff Walker's Mr. Bojangles. What do you, what do you give that, Michael? Um, it's not good. I don't know. It's just like some weird country song. Now, didn't Bob Dylan cover the song? He might have. One star. Yeah, one star. Let's say it. 
Uh, the impressions, G word woman. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I chose this version because, uh, it's been covered a couple of times, but this was sort of like the oldest one and how it comes up. Mm. It's not named within the text. It's like Billy thought of an old song. And so that's why I went with kind of like uh, what would have been like, I think, you know, like teenage Kings association. Um, mm-hmm. uh, this is like a, a kind of normal, like sort of doo-wop song, uh, would be better if it didn't have that word in it. I guess it would. Yeah, I, I'd feel more comfortable like, it, with it. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> yeah, uh, and also I don't know. It's, I I was listening to it before, and it's uh, just kind of like, kind of a little bit of like a like a dial tone of a song. Mm-hmm. It's not for me. Mm-hmm. Um. Then the third one, Rolling Stones, under my thumb. Now this is a a weird one. This is a, a a truly strange one to rate because song great, mm-hmm. um, you know, Rolling Stones classic. It's whatever. The way that it is deployed in this novel mm-hmm. is so bad and goofy <laughs> that I think it hurts the song somehow. <laughs> I think it, it made the song time worse. Makes the, it makes the song worse. I think. Yeah, explain this to us. How does this work? Uh, this is what, so, um, you know, the two grandkids of Limke, um, like one's a juggler and one's this, uh, uh, she's the one who shoots ball bearings, basically. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they're part of this kind of carnival-esque kind of deal going on. And uh, so the grandson at one part, at one point when Janelli's running around, uh, the grandson is hanging out and listening to music. And uh, so Janelli's able to sneak up on him. It's a real hitman, mm-hmm. you know, kind of scenario yeah. here. You know, point of interest, guy listening to music. Mm-hmm. Uh, opportunity, guy right. listening to music. Guy on and his so, Walkman. Guy on his Walkman. And so uh, he, so Janelli clubs this dude and not, no, he chokes him out. Mm-hmm. And then his, uh, you know, so he's like, uh, you know, he makes him pass out. He doesn't kill him or anything, but he, uh, uh, you know, chokes him out and makes him pass out. And uh, the, uh, I think it's when the headphones fall off, he knows he's listening to Under My Thumb. Uh-huh. Is that right? And so it's like, haha, you get it. Like, he's under his thumb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because then he, like, right? ties like, him to a he's, tree. He's, he's dominating. And the song itself, right, is this, like, you know, well-known, like, I mean, misogynist song, right? Mm-hmm. It's about, like, making a woman do what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, And then he ties him to a tree and plays it really loud. Mm-hmm. But it's just so, it's like when someone says a line in a movie and then a song begins playing. Let me give you a, let me give you an example of an infuriating way that this happens. Um, uh, hold on, hold on. I got, I got, I can't remember the dude's name. Alex Cameron, the Australian artist, has a song called Happy Ending that came out a few years ago. And it play and it played over the end credits of like four things that I watched. Jesus. And it was infuriating to me. It happens in uh one of the episodes of Search Party. I remember that. Mm. And right, but it's just this like clunky, unartful, thin. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the Rolling Stones made a song that could be deployed that way may, may, means that the song is bad. So it's going to be two stars. <laughs> All right. It's better than anything Bob Dylan ever made. That's so true. Like, it can't be one star, but <laughs> it's two. Well, okay. I mean, I guess that, that wraps it up. Uh, 
next month we'll be moving into 1985 uh, with another short story collection, finally, Skeleton Crew. And it's a big one. Is it true? Is that, is it a big one? It's, it's uh, I think, like 600 pages or something. Lord in heaven, what? Yeah, Skeleton Crew's a thick short story collection because of... I mean, not to not to burn pod for next uh, month, but more like long stories. <laughs> well, it has the mist in it. Yeah, I know, which um, is a, a full ass novel. <laughs> yep, um, and it also like uh, collects some things from like the night shift era that didn't get collected in night shift. So it's kind of like you know doing mop up on early career King in a way. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I I've read Skeleton uh, Crew a whole lot. Mm-hmm. But I will say, like, several times, I think I'm 99% sure it was my first Stephen King novel, or, you know, work, mm-hmm. full full book. But also, I will say that um, I've read the stories I like out of that thing a lot, and I've read the stories I don't like out of that thing maybe only one time. <laughs> so it's going to be an interesting thing to revisit. Yeah. Um, I don't have, I mean, I've read, I've read it. Uh, I don't have strong memories of the collection itself. I tend to remember like individual short stories. So I'm interested in kind of like reviewing it as a whole object once more. Mm, yeah, that's mm-hmm. going to be exciting. Uh, cool. Great. That's in the episode. Yeah. Uh, you want to remind us what we're doing it for? We're doing it for Steve. <laughs>